Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi and thanks for tuning into this week's Speak Up conversation. I'm Mary Woodward, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor Justice, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Jackie Leroyd. Jackie is a speech pathologist, or speech and language therapist as it's known there, at Her Majesty's Prison, otherwise known as HMP, Berwyn, which is the largest prison in the UK. I'm excited to hear about her experiences in setting up the speech pathology service there, though we do need to stress that Jackie will be sharing her own views and experiences and isn't representing the organisation itself. But with that being said, welcome, Jackie. Hello, it's lovely to talk to you. It's lovely to talk to you as well, Jackie, from, from across the pond. Definitely. It's very exciting to get to speak to Australia. It was snowing <laughs> here yesterday and it's it's oh all goodness. frosty on the rooftops this morning. I don't so it's very. That. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I really don't. Um, and it's lovely to, to speak with someone back in England as well. It's been, it's been many years since I've been in Australia now, but I miss you all. Um, I suppose just to, to get us started, um, speech pathology in adult justice, justice services here in Australia is basically an unknown entity. Um, occasionally there are positions, usually part-time or consultancy services um, coming in, but, but we're certainly not an established profession within the adult correctional workforce. So I guess it'd be really interesting for, for everyone to hear about your role in adult justice. Yes, I'd love to tell you about it as well. So um, I've been at HMP Berwyn now for five years. Um, we opened five years ago and I joined just very shortly after we opened. Okay. Um, and spe speech and language therapy within a justice setting in the UK, the, there's there's more speech and language therapists working within within the youth justice sector than there is within the adult justice sector. Yeah. But we are an emergent and upcoming field. So there's more and more of us coming online. There's more posts being developed in more prisons. Um, and um, my post was the first full-time post that's generically available within a prison in the UK. Um, so there was some um, speech and language therapy in um, sort of smaller units within bigger prisons. Mm -hmm. um, those smaller units are called therapeutic communities. So if you had, say, a therapeutic community that was offering care and support to a person with learning disability, there would be an amount of speech and language therapy bolted onto that that piece of work but um, the speech and language therapy service at Berwyn um, at the time was somewhat unique in that it was um, just an open service that anybody that was located there could access um, or can still access um, so so it was it was designed in the planning phase that there would always be a speech and language therapy service 
and that was very much embedded in the research that comes from from the youth justice sector that says that many people who are in youth services have got a speech and language difficulty yes and it's huge that that difficulty is very specifically located around um dld so um developmental language disorder whereas um, you find that lots of people that were in youth justice um, provisions go on to continue to have difficulties that end up in the adult system. Of course. But yeah. by the time they've got to the adult system, they've um, perhaps acquired some head injuries, um, perhaps fallen off of a roof or uh, been assaulted by somebody or been in a road traffic accident. There's also potential that they've used quite a lot of illicit substances. Um, there's potential that um, different things have happened to them that have have de-skilled them even more. Mm. Um, so actually, the the figures that we have for youth justice are probably on the conservative side, and that there's there's more need within an adult setting than there is yeah. within a children's setting. Yeah. Um, there's so much more um, kind of lived experience of trauma as well. I, I guess as the as the prison population ages as well, you'd also then expect in an adult custodial setting you'd expect to see all of the the other conditions that are associated with aging whether that's stroke or dementia or um definitely other sort of neurodegenerative conditions whether that's parkinson's or huntington's or, or any of the yeah. conditions that, that are more highly um prevalent in in older people yes definitely all of, whom, so- all of which can have um speech language and communication or swallowing um needs yeah. associated i suppose and that's what we found in mm. that you've, you've got to think of the prison as more like a village. Yeah. And so um, all of the things that you would have in a normal, typical village, so the developmental things that, that people have when they're, when, that they're born with, that they have when they're growing up, plus some of the things that are acquired for whatever reason, so lifestyle acquisition, and then also degenerative stuff that that people just develop as, as a process of the normal aging. Yeah. So the we have people as young as 18, but we have mm. people as old as, as really elderly. I think one of the local prisons to us has got somebody that's over 100 years old. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we've, I know. We've definitely had people in their 80s. Yes. Um, and so there is that that wide range and, mm. and the lived experience of people that have been in prison they mm. they have such a tough life health age is around 20 years older than their chronological age yes. so you can meet a person that's 35 who superficially if you had to guess their age you would think that they were in their 50s they've they've had tough times and I suppose that's both a factor of having been in prison for in some cases a lot of years but also all of the factors that of social disadvantage and drug use and mental illness, etc., that are exactly. more likely to, to result in someone being in prison. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. Mm. And I think even the, the setting of prison, um, although it's a rehabilitative culture and we're trying to do differently, um, it's not amazing for keeping your speech, language and communication skills pepped up because every day is the same and a lot of the conversations are the same. Mm. And um, there isn't 
particularly a stimulating environment. So I meet people who sort of say, you know, I think I've got problems finding words. There was things I used to be able to talk about 10 years ago and, and I just can't do it now. And when you explore it, it's more like a sort of lack of use, yeah. um, sort of deterioration and, and a sort of atrophy of skills because everyone just has the same script that they follow every day. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it in from that perspective before. But yes, that, that makes complete sense. Yeah. And then we have all the people that have stammers and the kind of, you know, sort of traditional adult community clinic stuff. Um, so it's yeah. really interesting because the younger lads tend to have more of your social communication needs and your um, sort of, you know, issues with with falling out and struggling to express themselves when they're mm. upset. So um, that's sort of like a communicative competence issue. Yeah. And then as they get older and they get more mature and they settle down from that kind of high expressed emotion, then they sort of move into those conditions like head injury and those yeah. sorts of things are the bigger issues for them. And then as they continue to age, there's issues like voice. It's, it's such a noisy environment in a prison. And so people spend years trying to shout at each other over mm. the sound of, of alarms and things. Um, so there, there's some voice problems that you that you find in that sort of middle group. And then as people age, they get they get things like stroke or MS or Parkinson's or dementia. So it's it's really lovely for me because I get to experience all different conditions. Um, you know, I get to be a real general practitioner yes. as well as being really sort of specific and niche in terms of being in criminal justice. Yes, absolutely. You need to be able to to manage pretty much every every clinical condition that a speech pathologist might encounter with the added complexity of the some of the challenges of, of some of the, the you know behaviors but also of the institution and and some of the constraints around that yeah. as well yeah definitely um, interested to know you know I just mentioned kind of institutional constraints how would you typically conduct assessments whether that's speech language and communication or dysphagia how how do you do assessments um how do you do that in a prison <laughs> yeah how do you do it in that so, kind of setting so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the service and then sure. come on to the assessment stuff because that will yep. help sort of locate it in context so um Luckily, I was given more or less a blank canvas to do whatever I wanted to with with the with my role, and the service. I very much wanted it to be um, a service that you could access and that anybody could could access. That I didn't want criteria that you know a person makes a referral and then I say, oh no, you don't meet referral criteria, and and kind of do all that level of rejection that happens. Yeah, and partially that's because most people. Um, in prison have had a lot of rejection from professionals through their lives and they've been let down a lot and also they a lot of them have um, a lived experience of trauma so I didn't want them to have to kind of be brave enough to to reach out for help and then feel knocked back and then get rejected. so yeah. yeah so it's it's really important for me that there was a, like an open referral system and men can refer themselves um, also um, any anybody that works there can refer anybody and I'm very um, kind of intentionally vague really in that I'll sort of say if you're worried about a person if you're not sure that they understand what you're saying or you you just get the feeling that you're slightly 
you know, not quite right when you're talking to each other and that one of you is slightly off topic, that is good enough reason to refer. So I don't expect my colleagues or even the men themselves to make a referral to me that says, oh, this person's got dysarthria or this person's got aphasia or whatever. I don't expect them to have to distill it down into that kind of vocabulary. Yeah. A referral that says, I'm just not sure what's going on with this chap is, mm. is good enough. Mm. And so... We then have, um, we, we do a, a sort of a triage. Um, so that's, um, I've, I've written um, a sort of a communication risk assessment whereby we look at things like, uh, is the person having frequent communication breakdowns? And as a result of that, what's happening in their world? And are they then losing the opportunity to be in work or be in education? Or, you know, are they then self-harming because they're spending too much time alone behind the door of their cell? And those kinds of situations, um, we kind of risk assess each thing. And that enables us to prioritize who we're going to see first. We see everybody within 14 weeks of referral. In reality, we probably see most people within four weeks. But okay. if we get a person that we feel is super duper at risk from communication breakdown, we'll try and get to see them within a matter of days. Yeah. So, you know, we've got scope to be responsive. Um, and so we have a kind of meeting with that person to start with. And that's because we're, we're really acknowledging the fact that people have problems with attachments and people have no reason to trust us. And they've probably never met a speech and language therapist before. Or they um, think they, they don't walk, really... so why would they need a speech pathologist? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't really know what weird, mysterious thing we're going to do <laughs> or how yeah. we're going to do it. Um, yeah. So it's, it's all a little bit scary. Um, yeah. So these, these big burly chats who are you know roughy tufties are actually petrified yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so um, meeting them sort of gently to start with and having a chat about what's going on would be the ideal starting point um, and it might be that that we go and have that chat in the place where they feel most comfortable um, and that could be anywhere within the prison we'll pop into the place where they work and meet them there for the first time if that's where they feel most comfortable. Um, every man has a telephone within their cell. So I can ring them up and say, look, I'd like to meet you, but, you know, where is good for you? Um, so I'll go and, and locate people. And, um, for example, we've got um, we've got a horticulture department, which is one of my favorite places in the whole prison. <laughs> and some men, I'll just go and kind of catch up with them while they're doing some gardening there. And we'll have a chat about what they're growing first and then have a chat about how they're feeling and, and how we can then have more conversations in a more private space. Yeah. So it's kind of that whole gently easing Rapport people building in. And, yeah. yeah, very much so. Because I'm going to want a lot of honesty out of them. Yes. And that's something that I'm I've got it's it's the the baseline is always going to be trust, isn't it? Of course. And, yeah. and that's so, very, it's a scary thing for anybody to allow themselves to be vulnerable, let alone as you say yeah. the, you know the the big burly guys who've spent yeah. most of their lives having to be tough. Exactly. And um, prison is such a complicated setting because you mustn't look too tough because then people want to um, take you down a peg or two. Mm. And you mustn't look too vulnerable because then you get people 
wanting to use that vulnerability. So everybody is trying to to find that middle ground all the time. And and I'm asking people to to flex around that middle ground. Mm. So I know I'm asking an awful lot of of people and people that are in a, a situation where there isn't much cognitive flexibility or choice or autonomy, I'm asking them do those things and try those things so there's a lot of negotiation around trying to find you know how we can make that workable um and you know it's 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 a different it's a different environment to outside a prison where you can kind of just say well let's work on your shopping list and going to the supermarket and buying the food that you need and then we'll pass you over to ot who will help Mm. with cooking or whatever it's just totally different to that it's it's sort of negotiating where that person is and what they feel brave enough to try and do in order to reach a goal. And I suppose so, working on functional goals must be very much challenging so. because of, because of the setting. I mean, we'll come on to internet a bit later. But yes, you, you don't have as many functional opportunities to to be practicing things. Well, we do. Um, it's just finding those opportunities mm, and making yeah. them work. Yeah. Um, because also we found that impairment based stuff. Um, isn't necessarily that successful either. So the goals that we set for people have to be really meaningful for them because the other beauty of this patient, this client group, is that if they don't get it and if they think you're doing a rubbish job, they will tell tell you. you. (laughs) (laughs) But also they'll vote with their feet and they just won't come to appointments. (laughs) So um, the... The the the, um, the attendance rate is kind of testament in itself yep. to the fact that the people that I'm working with are on board with what we're trying to achieve. So you know it's it's quite interesting because if you're not winning hearts and minds, yeah. then you you just meet with resistance and disengagement. So, so just, just bring this back part. to assessment for a second. Um, yeah. Do you? I'm sure that there's a lot of informal and functional assessment that you do and observation, mm-hmm. etc. But do you ever use the more kind of formal yeah. standardised assessments? Yeah, definitely. So we do these initial chats where we're kind of breaking the ice and we're talking about what I might be able to do that's useful. Um, and at that point, I'll be doing kind of using pen and paper and drawing some stick men pictures and and getting the person used to the fact that we're going to use a total communication approach um, and helping them dip their toe in the water of that. Because actually, a lot of people don't realize that if you write a list or write down keywords or draw a diagram, it helps. Um, you know, people naturally don't do that in everyday life, um, except in our house where everybody does it all the time. Um, so starting to model that and starting to help the person feel comfortable with writing and drawing is is huge. Yeah. Um, and then I might move from that to, say, doing a talking mat about um, what are you finding hard or, you know, what are your challenges or even what emotions are you experiencing? So we might do an amount of using a talking mat. So it kind of works through a hierarchy of challenge. Um, we might at that point also unpack a little bit further what's happening for the person with some comic strip conversations and those sorts of tools. So the person's feeling really listened to and I'm getting a really good understanding of what it's like to walk in their shoes. And at that point, I might say to them, look, I really need to figure out, you know, what's happening 
with your with your head injury um so can we do some formal assessment Mm. and so that would be the point that they would have a little bit of trust and confidence and know that it's okay to to engage with a formal assessment with me and that way I won't get false positives or skewed results that are to do with them guessing or something because we've already we've already kind of settled into understanding each other a little bit that makes a lot of sense so yeah so at that point we would do some assessment now it might be that we do one assessment, for example, the SCATB, which is a brain injury assessment. Um, some people can fly through that in one or two sessions. Other people, perhaps they've got ADHD and a brain injury, so they can only attend to something for a few minutes. So it might take us six weeks. Yeah. Um, so we might <laughs> we might do a little bit of assessment and then work on using some Lego together just to help with communicative competence and understanding theory of mind. So yep. there's that blurring of the assessment and treatment continuum. Yeah. Um, so so we, we can do a bit of that for a good while until I feel like I've got the, the data that I need to be able to understand really well exactly what's happening for that person, but also be able to articulate that to to other people other stakeholders so I I do quite a lot of linking with the consent of the individual with offender managers or the parole boards um, and to be able to speak to them about what exactly is happening if I can back that up with assessment data it's much more powerful than if I just say well I feel a bit like they're having (laughs) problems accessing vocabulary yeah Um, (laughs) whereas if I can say we did the standardized assessment, assessment yeah. and they've yeah. come out on the first percentile. Yeah. That hits the spot there. Yeah. So yeah. although that number is not meaningful to the patient particularly, it really hits the spot in making other people think about a person differently. Yes, and, it and can think help about them the access the right support from other Yeah, and let, be a little bit more yeah. holistic about, yeah. about a person rather than them being a really naughty bad person that's done whatever wrong. Yeah. Kind of trying to think about them as as a whole person that Mm -hmm. what support they're going to need and how they haven't reduced their risks of reoffending for a multitude of reasons but one of them may well be around their memory deficits Mm. or their ability to understand information and the fact that you've not once adapted that communication for them so it's it's really interesting to kind of have that mixture of what you kind of gather via informal stuff and gather via formal stuff mm, and then compare how the mm. two things work. And thinking about then what you do with that information in terms of um, how you provide support, what does that typically look like? Are you working directly with with the men are you just sharing that information so that the environment and the other people working with them is can be modified what what does that look like well so we're hoping to do all of those things (laughs) okay (laughs) So, (laughs) so um I do share information, but only with the individual's consent. So that's another kind of empowerment of that person to have that increased sort of social competence and that sense of feeling like they're a partner in what we're doing. So um, I'll I'll say to them, look, I'm going to write a report 
Um, and I mean, quite often I'll say to them, I won't write a report unless you want me to. But if we get to the stage where we need to write a report, I'll say to them, I'm going to write a report and I'm going to show it to you so that you can make sure that I've got it right. Yes. Um, and then after we've looked at it together, we then um, will talk about how the person wants that shared. And sometimes I just give them copies of it and they share it. Mm, um, other yeah. times they'll say, you can share it with this person and this person. And then I'll just, I'll share it or email it to whomever. Yeah. Um, so the, there's kind of ways and means to get the information out there. Um, there's quite a few people that I've been working with for a period of time. Um, and they then sort of say, look, would you please write a report so that I've got evidence of mm. of the fact that I've been doing something with my time? Yeah. Um, you know, and so, you know, if they're coming up for consideration of open conditions or, you know, there's some sort of um, review or, or marker of progress, they like to try and gather up bits and bobs of evidence. And I think that's so important. That's just like you or I gathering up our CV, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, there's an amount of formal reporting. There's also an amount of writing easy read and accessible materials for people. Yeah. So even if that's, um, say, I know that I worked with a gentleman who found it really hard. He hadn't got any internal coping mechanisms and he had ADHD and a long substance misuse history. And he was trying so hard to do differently but it was really hard for him because he didn't have the internal scaffolding to do that. And he needed external scaffolding to hold him and help him maintain his emotion regulation. Um, and so I used to once a week just write him a little letter that I popped in the internal mail, just reminding him of, of kind of... Um, you know, something we talked about, um, or, you know, something that he was, was going to try and do. And, um, just so that he knew that even if he didn't see me that week, I was still kind of being a cheerleader from yeah. afar for him. Yeah. Um, and, with and that, that there is someone who's caring enough for him to, yeah, to be providing to that kind of input. Yeah. 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 And we'd done with him in, in clinic, we had done um, sort of short term, medium term and long term goals, but we had put them in bubbles. So we'd done um, his happiness bubbles for kind of what's going to make him happy now and what's going to make him happy medium term and then the mm. longer term things. Mm. And so sometimes I would just, you know, do him a picture of one of his happiness bubbles and just send him that in the post. And, you know, it, it, he would know then that, oh, yes, I've got to keep, you know, keep striving. Um, you know, I've got to have a reason to keep striving, even yeah. if it's just because Jackie's going to hold me to account if I stuff up. So, um, so you know, it's, there's kind of that informal written stuff where yeah. I'm still engaging with people. Um, in terms of blocks of treatment, I, um, I, I do something that's really bespoke for each individual. So it might be that if we're working on a particular goal, say, for example, they want to be able to tolerate being in the college, but they find it really noisy and chaotic and they struggle with the classroom environment because they had bad past experiences and um, they're really worried about the interaction between them and the teacher. So we might do something where we're seeing them each week while we work on that kind of um, communication landscape. And then once they're in college and they're doing well and that's providing them with the structure, then the frequency of sessions will will decrease gradually 
And then if something's happening, I'll keep them on review. And if something's happening, I can up the the frequency and duration of, of input again. So often um, stress markers are around kind of key dates and anniversaries for people yes. yeah. or around kind of um, reviews or parole boards. And definitely in the run-up to release, yeah. um, people really struggle in that in that period of time. So I'll, I might keep a person on my caseload for a number of years, but that doesn't mean that I'm seeing them every week for an hour for all yeah. of those years. Um, it means that we're offering a service that fits what's going on in their life and that they know that that that, that is there and available mm. to them. Um so it's it's really sort of meaningful. It's not just a sort of drudgery just, that like, oh my God, I've got to go and see the, you know, go see Jackie today. I've got eight weeks she's... of one hour of yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um so it's you know, it's very led by their needs. Um and so after we've done assessment, um, we would look at what their hopes are for what they would like to do with the support of having a speech and language therapist. So it might be that they want to get into less arguments or that they want to have better phone calls with their family outside. Um, there's quite a few people that I've done work with around just that phone call issue mm. because if you haven't really done anything new or exciting with your day, it's really hard when you want to ring your mum every day and talk to her, but neither of you have done anything. Yeah. <laughs> and you end up having quite frustrating conversations yeah. or getting on each other's nerves. Um, and and um, quite often people in prison, um, they're really selective about what they want to tell family because they don't yeah. want family to think that prison is dangerous and scary. Yeah. Um, they also don't want to talk about their emotions and mm. kind of take off that kind of protective coat mm. they've been wearing because then it's harder to put it on again so it's really difficult for people to have telephone conversations and by the time you if you throw in a layer of speech language and communication needs on top of that so for some people the intervention it could be six weeks of of work around improving phone calls and 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 kind of how we can then turn that into a kind of outcome measure and how can we operationalize it so well, that I was just going to ask that <laughs> well, yes I think this is this is a challenge for a lot of speech pathologists in um, settings where, whether it's justice settings or otherwise when you're working on really functional goals with someone mm -hmm it can be really challenging to to measure that outcome in a in a meaningful way that also validates why we're doing what we're doing yeah definitely what, how, how do you do it <laughs> <laughs> so um so I, we i'm doing a mix of things so um i'm i'm using objective things that we can count so it might be the person paying attention to how long the phone call lasted and collecting some baseline data for us of how the phone call was only four minutes and they would rate it as, you know, not very pleasant. Um, so that's a mixture of an objective and a subjective measure. Um, but once we've got some baseline data of that, we can then say, well, let's see if we can do a 15-minute conversation that feels like you would say it was a good quality conversation. You might score it a kind of seven out of 10 for quality. So that way we've got an objective measure of, you know, the length of the phone call and how long they're managing to sustain an interaction for. 
and then also how they felt about it. So a self-rating that goes with it. Um, On top of that, then I might do some measuring of um, how well they've retained the skills from session to session, or if I've set them certain homework, how, how that's gone and kind of trying to get a feel for measuring progress in those ways that are harder to quantify. Um, and then in addition to that, we use therapy outcome measures. Um, so, you know, um, yes. Yeah. So, um, so then I would, I, uh, the therapy outcome measure scores zero out of five for the most impaired and five out of five for the least impairment. And it covers um, kind of functional things as well as impairment things and participation and well-being. Yeah. So, um, the person might remain the same in terms of impairment, but you would see a huge increase in functional ability and their well-being and confidence around something. Yeah. So there's a mixture mm-hmm. of of ways of measuring. Um, I mean, a better example might be um, I do a lot of work with people that are often getting into <laughs> what I call pickles. <laughs> um, <laughs> Prison doesn't necessarily call them pickles. (laughs) Um, People getting into pickles. um, And and, um, I'll I'll go to a meeting about a person that's been really challenging that the prisoner really struggling with. And it will be a case conference to say, what are we going to do? Because you're struggling and we're struggling. Um, and, and in the middle of that, I will just say to the person, do you get into a lot of pickles? And they'll be like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> um, so I work with a lot of people that get in pickles. Yeah. Um, and so they might be people that are, they might be being involved with, with fights with other other peers they might be being restrained a lot by officers Mm. they might be being adjudicated a lot so adjudication is like um where they get a kind of in-house um kind of sanction um you know a bit like a a speeding ticket or something but um like an in-house um kind of written warning for something and then they get a disciplinary meeting about it um so it might be the number of times the person's getting adjudicated um if they're being really pickly, um, they might be ending up on the care and separation unit. So that's um, what in movies is called the SEG or yeah. segregation. <laughs> um, and so it might be like, how often are they going down to the care and separation unit and how long are they spending down there? Um, so that those are all really objective things that we can measure. And working with a person so that instead of them, you know, um, physically assaulting a peer because of something that's gone wrong to walking away and using other strategies to express what is causing a problem. Mm. Um, that's massive. If Absolutely. we can address that, then Absolutely. we are making such a huge impact in the prison setting. And we're and actually... In a, in a, yeah. 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 And, you know, we're every, every individual involved in the chain is better off. Of um, and the person is more likely to progress to open conditions or um, yeah. progress to going home with a home detention curfew or progress in their sentence plan so that they can get their release. Um, there's all these, you know, potentials there that mean that speech and language therapy, although it, it feels really liberal and fluffy and kind, <laughs> actually saves money and yes. saves time yes. and stops people getting injured um, yeah. and improves life outcomes for yeah. individuals. Um, so 
And I think you it's know, so it's... important to to share and reflect on those outcomes. I think that there can be such um, such a demand from services and service planners and policy makers to, um, and I'm, I'm not meaning to criticise them, but just in terms that there can be such a demand for there to be a battery of assessments. So what assessments are you going to use when someone enters the yeah. service and then repeat those assessments at whatever point later in the service and that's your outcomes and it's like that's just that's just not in my opinion that's not appropriate for thinking about the individual's needs and what are actually going to be functional outcomes because as you as you say impairment may not have changed hugely so there may not be any difference at all on a standardized assessment but that doesn't mean that the way that person is is using what skills they have hasn't changed dramatically um and I think it's very short-sighted when we just cling to to standardised assessments, for example, as a way of demonstrating that. Um, just in the last minute or two, um, thinking about, I suppose, demonstrating value of service and success of service, um, I'm aware that that you started your service with quite low staffing and that's expanded. Um mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to to touch any more on that, but I'd certainly welcome some tips or advice for any other um, speech pathologist or speech and language therapist out there who might find themselves as the sole practitioner in this sort of setting. What can they do to try to demonstrate the value of their service and advocate for um, either expansion within their service or for other adult correctional settings to include speech pathology in their workforce? Big question for the last minute. But. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge question. <laughs> um, I would definitely say that in terms of proving our worth in the setting, getting out and being being involved with individuals and, and, and demonstrating what we're doing yeah. and then collecting lots and lots of data, collecting data on the outcomes, the number of times you've seen a person, um, collecting data from the patients to ask them what they found useful um, so that you're demonstrating what you're doing every single day because actually I'm phenomenally good value for money because <laughs> the number yeah. of the number of impacts that I make in in different ways um, and how that can be distilled down into cost savings mm. um, so if I can reduce the number of days that the person spends on the care and separation unit because I've helped plan a transition to get them back into the general population population um that way i can work out how much that would have cost the prison and how much therefore i'm saving you know comparing that with you know two years ago when that same person wasn't getting speech and language therapy support Mm, mm. and would be perhaps in the care and separation unit for a longer period so it's really um the managers are interested in money and the kind of budgetary impact of course um stakeholders that are interested in the whole person are interested in the functional goals and the difference you make to real people and collecting those little case nuggets of how um, speech therapy has made a difference for an individual Um, and colleagues are interested in feedback of of what they've done that's made things better so it's kind Mm -hmm. of a pat on the back to the other people because we're a small service we can't be everywhere all the time so sometimes I need the prison officers to do it for me yeah but I need to acknowledge that and give them a little pat on the back 
Wonderful. Um, Jackie, we could talk, we could talk for, for days, I have no doubt. <laughs> um, your work is truly inspiring. And I've got no doubt at all that I will be inundated with um, requests for either more information or for your contact details. So prepare yourself. <laughs> um, I look forward and, to it. <laughs> and I really, really hope that um, in time, Australian correctional settings um, start to consider the, the value of speech pathology um, included in their multidisciplinary workforce more and look to places like yours as, as inspiration in that. So thank you so much for talking with me today. It's a complete pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back with another Speak Up conversation next Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in 